Good afternoon and welcome to another Mainly Matters. I'm Rob Carmichael back with you again today and I'm honored to have as my guest today Major General Doug Farnham, the Adjutant General of the State of Maine, who also wears the title of the Commissioner of Defense Veterans and Emergency Management as a member of the Governor's Cabinet. He assumed these duties. We were just talking about it. It's going to be eight years coming in January. He's started this position in uh, January of 2016. And Doug is, uh, Doug, he hopefully you won't mind me calling him Doug as we go through here. But General Farnham is a 1984 graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. He's a command pilot with more than 5,700 hours in a variety of aircraft, including the T-37, T-38, C-21, KC-135. And we'll discuss more about his, his long and distinguished military background in detail today. And we'll also talk about his background as a distinguished uh, business leader, as, as the former owner of Getchell Ice, one of the premier family-owned businesses in the state of Maine for many, many years. So welcome to Mainly Matters, Doug. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, and you can call me Doug as long as I can call you General, as long as you can, I can call you General. How's that? <laughs> Well, it, I was thinking about, you know, I always like to be formal and use that title, but I thought after a while saying General Farnham all the way through this, this it would it would seem <laughs> a little awkward because I know you so well, but uh, certainly you deserve all the respect that goes with the title of Major General in, in leading this state of Maine uh, in the, in the uh, capacity that you're in right now. So uh, thanks for taking the time to join me today. I, I uh, have told the audience many times that, you know, we try to learn a lot about the leaders in the state of Maine through these podcasts and particularly those that uh, are in positions uh, like yours in the state of Maine and and military, but also in business. And I think it's a unique uh, discussion today because you have that that history of both a leader in in government and military, but also uh, one of our leaders uh, great business leaders in the in the greater Bangor area, uh, and I know uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But one of the things I want, uh, as we get started, you know, as I was looking at this, I was thinking that probably many of our listeners don't really understand the structure of the National Guard, the, the adjutant general position, and how that relates to the commissioner role and all of that. Could you talk a little bit about the structure of, of your position? Sure, I, I can do that. The uh, what the role that I play is uh, really is a dual hat role. Role I am the adjutant general, which puts me uh, in uh, in command of the Maine Army National Guard and the Maine Air National Guard, and and uh, which is in the state. You know, in our federal role, it goes up through the federal the federal side of the house, and on the state role, I uh, report to the the governor, uh, who is the commander in chief of the guard when we're in our state in our state uh, state role. Um, in Maine, and not necessarily in every state, but in Maine, the adjutant general also was dual-hatted as a commissioner, uh, in this case for the Department of Defense, Veterans, and Emergency Management. So uh, in the state role as a member of the cabinet, I have the military department, which is the National Guard and some associated pieces, um, and also Maine Emergency Management and the Bureau of Veterans Services that roll up in, into that department. Uh, so it's a little bit of a unique role. Uh, not every adjutant general across the state has the exact same setup. Not all of them are, me- are actually cabinet members, but uh, in Maine, uh, I, I, it is a. I mean, it's an honor to be part of the governor's cabinet. And so that uh, your role, let's just say Monday through Friday, most Monday through Friday uh, in, during the week, you are part of the cabinet, 
Is that uh, that's the the structure? That's, that's- yeah, that's correct. I, during the week, I am a state employee uh, reporting to the go- reporting to the governor and uh, and the Department of De- with the state Department of Defense, which is the National Guard, uh, and then and then the two other bureaus, Veteran Services and Main Emergency Management. And people might not realize what a big big role your office plays in the in, in the state emergency man- MEMA, as we call it, Main Emergency Management right. Association, and also. Veteran services, and and I believe Maine has one of the oldest or, or largest population of veterans in the nation. Exactly, we we have uh, depending on who, who's counting and what they're using for metrics, we've been between second and fifth as far as uh, the per capita highest number of veterans, uh, you know, in the in the country, um, and, and and just a great reputation for uh, for having people to serve. So. Uh, our Bureau of Veteran Services has really, uh, over the last, though, probably 10 to 15 years, has really expanded uh, to, meet the, to meet the needs of our veterans. And really, uh, because there's such a high percentage of veterans in the state, uh, it, it means there's a lot of services out there, a lot of people that want to help veterans, um, along with, of course, the Federal Veterans Administration um, and our state bureau uh, spends a lot of time trying to trying to, uh, you know, find the veterans, identify the veterans, and match them to the resources that are already available in the state, um, you know, the best they can. Because, real, like I said, it's, it's something I think all Mainers should be proud of, is the resources and the services that are provided for veterans here. Now, is there any correlation or any relation, if, if you will, between uh, the Veteran Services Department and the VA, um, I guess, long-term care and VA facilities throughout the state of Maine? No, this is really three. It does. It's interesting you bring that up because it has been in the news a little bit lately with the, some Maine veteran, the Maine veterans homes, which have been in the news over the last year or so. Um, and then you've got, of course, the Veterans Administration, the VA, which everybody talks about. And then we have the Maine Bureau of Veterans Services, which really are three separate entities. Uh, there is a little nexus between the Maine veteran homes and the state. But it's not a. It's they are their own uh, independent, uh, not for profit. Um, but it's uh, there are three separate entities, and a lot of people get those confused and use them interchangeably. But uh, they do work very well together. Yeah, and as you say, we we have a great reputation uh, with our uh, veterans department of veterans affairs, and and I've experienced it myself. They're just tremendous people. Do a great job for for our. our or aging and our large veteran population that we have in the state of Maine. And the other department we mentioned was Maine Emergency Management Agency. Of course, you know, anytime there's any, any type of a, a, a real emergency, maybe it was the ice storm. That was one of the biggest ones that I experienced uh, when I was in the National Guard. You have a direct uh, role there as well. Right. Maine Emergency Management is kind of a unique organization as well. They don't have first responders necessarily, but they are responsible for implementing a lot of the grant programs from the federal government to make sure, uh, you know, the, the money gets to the counties where uh, emergency management really, uh, you know, r- rubber meets the road really is at the local level, <clears throat> excuse me, at the local level. But the uh, they spend a lot of time making implementing the grants, doing training, um, running exercises, developing exercises, uh, and writing plans. So that when something bad happens, uh, they they are ready to go, and they operate the state emergency operations center. And I tell you, the last uh, couple of years, you know, it's been 
it's been absolutely crazy for emergency management in this, you know, if you just look at the, you know, the flooding and the, uh, I mean, you don't even, COVID, I mean, they were right in the middle of COVID running the state emergency operations center along with the state CDC. Um, and again, since COVID, every time we turn around, there's a storm and there's power outages and there's road washouts and, and they get involved in, uh, in, in a lot of that, uh, the recovery from that when it comes to uh, helping, uh, again, coordinate the, the money that comes from the federal and state governments to help uh, help people recover from these uh, these disasters. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, people don't normally think about those types of departments until until something happens, the majority until of the population. And I thought exactly nobody nobody thinks about it. And and but they're they're folks that have to be ready. Uh, and then they they are, are unique people that that want to help. Um, and, and really, in all aspects of what uh, the folks I'm involved in, that's what makes this job so special, whether it's people that are serving in the, in the military or in the Guard or the Bureau of Veteran Services or MEMA. It's all people that are committed to helping, you know, helping veterans, helping people that are experiencing disasters or planning for disasters or, of course, uh, as you know, guardsmen who are willing to uh, uh, make the ultimate sacrifice if they have to for the country. And if people wondering, you know, wondering what, uh, these folks are doing on a day-to-day basis. A lot of that, as you mentioned, is is planning, training, and getting ready for the types of things that uh, may occur and have occurred uh, a lot over the you know last uh, couple decades and more. Well, Absolutely. and then so then you transition uh, during and people people think of it as one week in the month, two weeks in the summer. You and I both know that's not <laughs> necessarily the case of the National Guard anymore in the National Guard's role. But you transition. Uh, during uh, weekends and in other times, I know you're also you have to go throughout the the country and throughout the world at, at times with your National Guard role. And we're going to talk a little bit more than about that as we move along. But I want to kind of step back a little bit and talk about uh, Doug Farnham and, and where you grew up and and how you got into the military uh, to begin with. <laughs> now I know you grew up in Brewer. Uh, I did. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you uh, decided to. I know you were an athlete. I think you were a quarterback in in high school, a top quarterback, from what I hear. Uh, And you ended up going to the Air Force Academy. What led you to uh, think about the military or consider the military at that age? Well, I really, I really didn't have any connection to the military at at all. My my. uh, my didn't have much family history. I had some great uncles that were involved in the military, so I hadn't really considered it a lot. Um, and I, and I, I uh, actually was planning on going to Bowdoin. Uh, I was going to play football and baseball at Bowdoin. That was my plan. That's what I told everybody I was going to do. And, uh, and then I, got, I had gone through the application process to the Air Force Academy because I had a, a guy who had a, he was a, a track athlete and had, she had a locker in the locker room or, or locker beside mine. And one day he told me he was going to the Air Force Academy and he, and, uh, and I didn't really know much about it. I heard him talk about it and he'd sent me a note after he had finished basic training and said, Hey, I just finished basic training and you know, I think you'd like it here. And this guy wasn't even really a friend as much as just a, you know, a guy I knew. Um, and, but for whatever reason, he reached out and just dropped me that note when he finished basic training and said, you know, I, I think you'd like it here. So I started the process. I just had it in the back burner, but I really didn't intend to do it. Um, and then I got the acceptance letter in the mail. 
I remember taking it out of the mailbox. I saw it. I kind of threw it on the counter and I said, well, that doesn't really matter. I'm going to Bowdoin. And uh, went through the normal evening, had dinner and watched, probably watched Walter Cronkite or something and did my homework and went to bed. And as soon as I, my head hit the pillow and I looked at the ceiling, I said, I'm going to the Air Force Academy. And I, 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 I kind of joke about it as being as that, uh, that Malcolm Gladwell book about, uh, you know, thinking without thinking, you know, I hadn't really thought about it, but I just knew for something told me it was the thing to do. And, and that, that microsecond micro decision, whatever it is, uh, absolutely changed my direction. That's for sure. Now, was it the, was it the leadership part of it that uh, did, or the, the team part of it? What was it? You said it came to you just sort of all of a sudden, but do you think it was, you've been involved with athletics and I've always, always thought that the military, uh, was a great fit for people that had been involved in athletics, been in leadership opportunities in school and so forth. Was there anything like that that propelled you to that decision? I, I think looking back at it, it was doing something different. It was the challenge. It was a little bit of the unknown. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd like to say it was because I wanted to fly, but I can't even say I at that time I knew I wanted to fly. It was more. Uh, it was more really doing something different and ch- and challenging myself and not and not, not doing the routine, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's what really appealed to me, but I don't think I real I didn't really realize it. I didn't think about it until it just, you know, just dawned on me that I, I needed to do it. And at what point when you were in the Academy, did it strike you to uh, become a pilot or to go in that direction? There are a lot of different well, I, opportunities. I hate, there. To, I, hate to, I hate to make it sound like all this just kind of happened happenstance, but at, at that time, especially, uh, you know, over half the class went, uh, went to pilot training and you are just, you know, from day one, every lunchtime, there were flyovers or every time there was a break in between classes, they're showing video of airplanes flying or, um, you know, and it wasn't as much a decision to do it. It was just not making the decision not to do it. Uh, that was the track everybody was on. And, uh, and you just, Again, without even thinking about it, you just knew you were going to be a pilot because that was uh, that was that was the course. That was what the, the t- you mentioned teamwork. That's what your team was doing, um, and so that so you kind of went along with it. Obviously, I think we all know. Most people recognize that the service academies have an intense academic focus, a very very top notch academic institutions. But historically, they have always played a placed a high level of importance on team sports and activities. And, you know, of course, uh, Doug, you were an athlete in high school, an excellent athlete, played several sports. Did you play any varsity sport at the academy or any particular intramural sport? I did. And that that's one of the things that I tell kids because I've spent the last 20 years, talk, you know, or more talking to kids from Maine that want to go to the academy. And at one time for quite a few years was the state director of the Air Force Academy's uh, admissions program in the state. And uh, and that's what I tell people is the intramurals, especially if you're an athlete in high school, one of the things, if you go to college and you don't play sports, um, y- you miss it. And and that's one thing that at the service academies, when you're playing, uh, you know, every season, three, you know, three seasons, there's an intramural sport that, that you are required to play and you're representing your squadron. Um, and, and, you know, it, it does help fill that void um of you know as soon as class is over you're you know three days a week you're heading down to the athletic fields and you're playing 
you know, in, in my case, you know, it was football and basketball and, and, uh, uh, you know, and tennis and, you know, every season was something, something different. Um, you know, team handball that you see in the Olympics. I mean, I actually, one, one intramural season played team handball for my, for my squadron. So it's a, uh, you know, that, that is a, a big part of the athletics is a big part of the, any of the academy experiences. Did you meet your wife, Nikki, there while you were at the uh, academy? I did. I did. She's from North Dakota, and, and she was there in class behind me, and, and, and we did meet at the academy, and, and I convinced her to come back to Maine. And you have three boys. I do have three boys. One, uh, one lives down in Washington, D.C. now, one in Boston, and one down in St. Petersburg, Florida. All, uh, all out of college and growing up. What is the active duty service obligation after you graduate from the academy? I know it used to be five years or, or something like that. Yeah, after, after flight school, it, it, if you graduate from academy, it's different now, but if you graduate from academy, it's five years. And then it was, if you went to flight school, you had uh, six after flight school, so a total of seven. So, um, so I served, I, I went to flight school. That was a full year. And then I, I flew a Learjet, so C20, we call it a C-21. It was a Lear 35 that was brand new in the Air Force at the time. Um, and I got assigned right back to Colorado Springs at the Air Force Base down in the southern part of the city, uh, flying Lears. And, uh, and that was an awesome experience for just pure flying, flying all over the, you know, really all over the um you know, all over the continental U.S., of course, into Canada, Alaska, down to Panama, you know, basically. Um, but for a young, you know, 24, 25, 26-year-old to be able to fly around general officers and fly them all over the country, it was great, great experience. And, and I, I, wanted, I knew I wanted to come back to Maine at some point, so I stayed right in that Learjet and taught people how to fly that uh, so that I could get back to Maine right, at, you know, as soon as I, as soon as I can, as soon as I could. Did you consider going to the airlines at all upon leaving active duty? You know, I, I never, I never did, Rob. I, a lot, I mean, everybody that I was flying with at that time, 1991, everybody was going to the uh, airlines. Uh, I'd never had that desire to go to the airline. I knew I wanted to come back to Maine and get involved in the family business. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was, it was hard to get off active duty, actually harder than I thought it was going to be. It was kind of my plan. But you kind of felt guilty, you know. You, I, I don't want to use, I guess, brainwash isn't the right thing. But you, you go through all that training and all the, and all you, you know, you just are taught that you want to serve, and now all of a sudden to think you're going to get out and leave the military, it, it took a little bit, um, as you know, to leave, decide, make that decision to leave active duty. You kind of felt like you were letting, maybe letting some folks down. And I was, I was very fortunate. Um, and when we talk about people that are mentors or whatever, you know, you never know where that's going to come from. But there was a four-star general that I used to fly. He was the head of uh, Air Force Space, uh, U.S. Space Command. And we actually brought him back to Bangor. And on the, one day, on the, he'd toured the ice plant in Brewer. He'd been up to the University of Maine. Uh, he'd been to Sugarloaf. He'd talked to the Bangor Rotary and and uh, was very familiar with uh, what my life might be. And, and we were flying back one day, and, and he, t- he told me, you know, uh, I t- said, hey, I, I'd love to come back and be part of the, this community, and, but I, f- I feel guilty leaving active duty. And he said, you know, there is more than, you know, there's more than one way to serve, and there's more than one, you know, you don't have to be an active duty to serve, you know, to serve your country. And, and it was really almost like his, uh, you know, his, I wouldn't say permission, but, you know, kind of say, hey, yeah, you know, there's other things that you can do. 
uh, and still and still be serving. So that's that was what led to me coming back home. I experienced sort of the same thing with my um, my situation. I got off active duty after about six years for personal reasons. Came back and I and I struggled with that same decision. I wanted to serve with my with my peers and wanted to, but I also felt something pulling me back uh, back to Maine and and join the guard uh, from the same sort of standpoint uh, after six years of active duty. But it was it was difficult. It was a challenge to do that. Yeah, it's one of the stories I tell. I mean, that is one of the best things that the guard has to offer. It allows people to come back home and, and continue their service and, and be able to really do have the best of both worlds, be part of, you know, back in your, you know, back in your home community, which is a draw for a lot of people. And, and it's a good thing to have that draw and, uh, and, but at the same time be able to serve. And that's the, that is one of the unique things the guard provides. And, and one of the, you know, one of the things I talk about more than anything. And you transitioned at that point in time to, um, your family business and a part-time uh, guard role, which what I think most people probably recognize more than they understand um, those that aren't involved with the guard, understand the full-time support. So you, you come back and you're immediately get involved in the business. I did. I came back and uh, I got, I first I had to go out and learn how to fly a KC-135, the tankers. And then I came back and got, and I was a part-time part-time in the guard and got, got right involved in the family business. Uh, there in Brewer, and I was a night flyer, so I just uh, I, there was a group of us that worked downtown, or teachers, or whatever, and and uh, and we'd always fly at nighttime, and and then go to work during the day, which really worked out great. And I, I being a, in a family back in the family business that had been in our family for you know over a hundred years at that point, um, I felt a, a, a draw to that, and I had some plans and goals as far as what I wanted to do with the business. Um, and uh, again, being able to, uh, it was just a, I mean, that's what's so great about the guard is being able to do, is being able to, to do both. And, so. and how does that perspective help you as, as, or help you, I guess, through the chain, but particularly as the adjutant general, having the perspective of being an active duty officer, then traditional guardsman, and then full-time uh, guard, uh, you were, you became full-time guard at, uh, before right. the adjutant general position, I believe. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, correct. After 9/11, I, uh, I, we got all got activated, and I was sitting alert and flying a lot more and doing the, the combat air patrols over New York City and DC. And I realized that I was having a blast flying with the guys again. And and uh, my dad had just retired, and uh, so I was in a position to have a guy, a, a guy who had been his number two for years, kind of run the day-to-day operation. And I, so we kind of fl- I flip-flopped, and I became full-time guard, part-time ice business and and hired the other guy to do the day-to-day stuff at the at the ice plant and it worked out worked out great and i i always thought having done that first as you were kind of alluding to made it easier to understand you know two-thirds of our force is part-time and and you you really have to uh as a full-time guard uh leader you you do have to recognize and understand that people are pulled a lot of different directions when they're trying to fit the guard into their life. And, and, uh, you know, kind of joke a little bit that if you're, uh, if your spouse, your employer and your guard commander aren't equally upset with you, you're not doing the job right, you know, That's right. and, uh, you know, you're always trying to balance it. And, and there are different times in your career that, that one has to take priority over the other. And if we don't as guardsmen and in the guard, we don't find a way to, uh, if we don't find a way to give a little bit and give people room to 
to focus on their civilian career when that's needed or focus on their family when that's needed, then they're not going to stay with us. And, uh, and we, and we lose a valuable resource. Um, and I think I also, from an employer side, recognize the fact that, Hey, sometimes I can talk to an employer and say, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, sacrificing a little bit for that, uh, that soldier or that airman to go do the X training or X deployment, they're going to come back with some skills and experiences, um, that, that they would not get just going to work for you every day. And that's going to be, that's going to benefit you long-term. So um, I think being able to recognize all sides of that is helpful. And that's, as I was uh, looking at your resume and thinking about the podcast today, I was thinking about that. What a great perspective you have as, as the, the leader of our national guard in the state of Maine, having served both uh, full-time, part-time, and a business owner. And I, I, I saw that a little bit as in my role uh, with my business right now is, is in the in the HR training and strategy role. I, I've seen um, the issues that our guardsmen and women have trying to get time off and, and when they need time off and they need to be away. I've seen it from that perspective. And I also saw it as, as a commander in the guard. So I think that's it's just a great competency that you bring to your position and very much needed in this day and age right. in particular. Absolutely. And, and, and the other part of it is, you know, it's not just the employer saying, Hey, yeah, you can go do that. I, but it's the, uh, you know, it's the coworkers too, I think that, uh, that end up covering, covering for our folks. We, we always talk about the employer. We don't always talk about the coworker. I was talking to one, a, a local police officer the other day who was here on drill and, Said, you know, great support from the uh, great support from the leadership, but on drill weekend, I'm not sure the other officers are all that excited about drill weekend because they know they have to cover for those of us that are in the guard. But, that, that's uh, but a great do. point. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great point, and it's especially with organizations that are very small, like local police departments and some of those entities that that don't have a lot of coverage when the person's away. Exactly. C- certainly. Now, wh- from a leadership perspective, how how did that transition work? It, do you find much difference in, in your role as a leader from the business side of, uh, say, Getchelice at the time and in the military? Do, uh, do you lead differently or the same sort of fundamentals follow you in each role? You know, I think I think a lot of it is pretty similar. I, and I, the way I kind of explain it to some folks is, People have a, a vision, especially if you're not involved in the military, haven't been involved in the military in recent years. They've got this vision of the military and what a military leader is, right? You're standing up there barking orders or it's George Patton, you know, if you can't, you know, tell them to salute when you tell, if they don't salute when you tell them to salute, how are you going to get them to die for their country, you know, and all the gruff, uh, you know, that's, that's some people's vision of leadership in the, in the military. And as you know, it's not like that anymore. Right. You know, I, I, I half joke that, uh, you know, nowadays, um, you know, nowadays, uh, military leaders more likely to have read Simon Sinek than they are right. to have read Clausewitz, <laughs> right? You know, that's right. So, uh, uh, so a lot. I mean, a lot of the skills are 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 similar. Um, I think one of the, uh, I think one of the, uh, one of the, the things that that I always remind folks and try to remember myself is. It, when you get put into these leadership positions, whether it's at the ice plant or whether it's at the wing or here doing what I'm doing or wherever it happens to be, um, you're going to be you're going to be providing leadership. 
whether you know it or not, or you care, you try, you're going to be providing leadership. The only real question is, are you providing good leadership or bad leadership, right? Right. Uh, so you just need to be aware that that uh, you're in that role and that you now ha- are t- assuming that responsibility. So, so you know, you, n- you need to pay attention and do do the best you can. Well, I've experienced the same thing with people so many times when I started in business would tell me that I don't seem like somebody who was in the military. <laughs> and I'd, I'd yeah. say, what, well, what does that mean? You know, and, I, and I, I ended up telling some people the biggest difference I saw initially was the fact that there wasn't a, a coffee fund that I had to contribute to in the, in the private <laughs> business world. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I asked where it was actually the first day, where do I put my money in for the coffee fund? And they laughed at me, but it, yeah. it, 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 that's a great, it's great to hear that because there's, leaders are leaders and situations determine and sometimes, you know, the way you lead. But I think for most people, the core philosophies, the core beliefs stick with them regardless of whether they're in the military or they're operating a private business or whatever the organization is. And you're you're getting those leadership experiences all the time, whether you know it or not. And if you're just paying attention, I, I, I'll tell a, I'm going to tell a quick story. I was telling the other day to somebody when I was up at the University of Maine, and it reminded me of uh, of one of our uh, one time that we we got together. We, you and I had sat on a on a panel that our friend our friend Steve Trimper had asked us to do, right. and uh, talking about leadership. And I pulled into the parking lot, and I ended up parking right beside a car that was that belonged to Sean McKenna. And you, I mean. We've lost Sean, but you remember, mm-hmm. I mean, he's right. a leadership, leadership professor and, you know, he was, he was the leadership guru, right? And his license plate, I, I didn't know that much about him at the time, but his license plate was LDRSHP, leadership. And so I'm, I'm walking in to talk to these guys and I'm thinking, what am I going to, I'm going to be sitting there with General, you know, Rob Carmichael and, and this guy that's got leadership on his license plate. What do I have to bring to the table? You know, and, uh, and not, I mean, I, I was nowhere near as eloquent as you guys, but at the end of the day, you know, I realized that, Hey, in my life experiences, I had, you know, I did, I had, I had learned a few things and I had experienced a few things that, that could be shared in. So, you know, nobody should ever sell, this, um, sell themselves short on what they they have learned and experienced in, in their roles as leaders. Well, then that, that's a great segue into uh, one of my questions was going to be, you know, do you have a leadership philosophy or uh, some core principles that form the foundation of your leadership philosophy? Well, uh, you know, I, I was joking with somebody the other day as I flipped over the calendar to uh, to December. Um, the big desk calendar. And every time I change the, I tear off the month uh, at the top of the, at, right underneath where it says December, I write fly the airplane, right? Fly the airplane and fly the airplane. And, and it's just, you know, know what, uh, you know, what is, uh, you know, what is, what is important. You've mm-hmm. got it, something's going on. You don't, something's happening. You're not expecting. What do you do? You fly the airplane, right. you know, you stop, stop, think, collect your wits. Uh, you know, things that I learned when I first learned how to play, uh, fly airplanes, you know, aviate, navigate, communicate, right. Have, have the, uh, try to have the right priorities. Um, so I think that that is, uh, that and, uh, and try to, uh, and try to, uh, make others feel the same, make others feel the same, that they're comfortable setting the priorities and they don't have to, uh, 
is not not a panic uh, response to things that that you, you you fly the airplane first and then you deal with you deal with whatever the uh, the emergency is or the malfunction or the challenge um, you deal with that next. But then that's a that's a great uh, perspective, particularly in in today's world. We're being impacted. You're feeling it, I'm sure, with so many uh, external uh, things uh, that that affect every aspect of the decisions you're making in the military, whether it's uh, your role probably as a commissioner, but so many external environmental factors that constantly bombard you. And it's easy to lose focus of what's really important, what you used to call the, the purpose. What's our mission? What's our you know reason for existence here? And it sounds like that just flying the airplane is, is helping you avoid that falling into that trap of, of uh, you know, reacting to everything that comes into play. It, exactly. You, you just don't know what, I mean, who would have thought, you know, just in the last couple of years, you know, with the, you know, that we would have been responding to, to COVID like we did. Um, and, uh, and then in the middle of that, you know, sending 200, uh, 200 soldiers down to, uh, Washington D.C. to make sure that the <laughs> to help make sure that the uh, that the inauguration goes off without a hitch. I mean, right. they were not thing they were not things that uh, you know that we had ever thought about or that I had ever thought about uh, navigating. So um, you just you just don't know. And what what do you think uh, today? I know at least in the Army side, I think uh, there have been challenges to recruiting. What are the greatest challenges to the? Military National Guard in particular today. What are you Wait, facing? You mean, I mean, re- recruiting is really uh, is really number one. Uh, we need to be able to recruit. And it's not just the National Guard; it's it's everybody mm-hmm. uh, all, all across the services for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, and and I, you know, it's the de- you know declining population that are eligible. It's uh, it is a little bit of the propensity to serve uh, piece that uh, that. Is, is really more complicated than I, I, the more I talk to people about it and think about it, I think it's more complicated. It isn't as simple as just a divided, you know, political division. Uh, it's, it's more than that. Uh, just, I, I think a lot of people are trying to figure that out. Um, I think that's the biggest challenge. The second, uh, I, I think the second thing is just, uh, is, is the budget um, and and all the, uh, you know, the, 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 the spending uh, at the federal level, continuing resolution uh, issues, and- continuing resolutions, budgeting, and just the uh, just people talk a lot about the U.S. military having such a huge budget and you know bigger than how many countries you know below it and all that. But they, you know you stop and think at what the responsibilities of the U.S. Department, you know U.S. military and Department of Defense between you know what's going on over in Ukraine and what's going on in the Middle East, and of course. You know, China being the, what we're calling now our pacing challenge is just, you know, we have worldwide responsibilities. And and I believe and one of the things that I think is why it's important and those that serve understand that that, uh, yes, we have a lot of responsibilities, but our responsibilities are for what is good in the world. And uh, we're we're the ones that are trying to make make things good, you know, and that it makes it, uh, it there's never an end to what needs to be done. So. Um, so having the, having a budget and having uh, having the resources to do what needs to be done is uh, is uh, is probably the next biggest challenge because we're at a time where we need to be able to 
to do the the small things like we've been doing for the last 20 years. Those aren't going away. Uh, but at the same time, be able to compete at the high level with very expensive, exquisite weapon systems that are very, very expensive. And so that's putting a huge strain on budgets. Um, and so we need to be able to keep up with that. So I, between recruiting and then in that, uh, you know, recapitalizing and, 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 and modernizing our, our forces, um, at the same time, we're doing all the things we do around the world is, is the other big challenge. And I would think that if it's anything like it has been in the past, when the economy's going pretty well, and by that, I guess I mean that the, the jobless rate is pretty low. There are a lot of jobs out there, a lot of unfilled jobs. That probably makes it even more challenging to recruiting to recruit uh, soldiers and airmen, as well as the the limitation on qualifications. Right? That when I was with, I've been with Mission Readiness, which is a group, and we look at uh, trying to find ways to improve the readiness, uh, or at least the uh, availability of potential recruits. And so many of them don't qualify. Oh, exa- exactly. I mean, just the obesity piece, uh, ki- you know, the uh, um, drug use, um, some of the academics, um, you know, then, you know, there's some of the other medical issues uh, that, that people have been treated for that probably in our day, people were treated the same way. It just wasn't, you know, in electronic records and you didn't have, you know, medications right. and everything what left untreated. But um so anyway, this, so that is a that is a big a big factor, uh, and then, you know, the other part of it that is that it, it fits into this people being able to serve is twenty five years ago, like some I I should know the number I I've talked about it at different times, but somewhere around ninety percent of kids in that age of joining the military had a family member, a neighbor, or a close influencer that had served in the military. Something like 90%, I forget the exact number. Today, that's less than 50%. You know, as, a, as our military has, with a lot less people in the military, I mean, the, the Army and the Air Force are around 28, 30% smaller today than they were back in 1991. Right. At the start of the first Gulf War. And so, uh, you know, so there's just a lot less, you know, there's a lot less people that have served in the military that are out there in the communities and so kids are exposed to less folks. And those influencers, uh, you know, make a big difference. Uh, people seeing and talking to folks that had served uh, is important. And it just, you know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen as much. We can run ads all you want, but there's nothing like having a teacher or a coach or an uncle or a brother or a father that served uh, to, uh, to get other folks to serve. Well, and I, and probably from a budget standpoint as well, I don't know what the statistics are now, but the, the few few people that are in Congress, either in the Senate or the House, that have served uh, makes a difference. I, I think there may be a little, a little, little higher than it was five, ten years ago, but it was less than one percent of those serving in Congress had had any military experience at all, which certainly, uh, I would guess, can affect. Uh, what they do around military budgets and the whole, you know, military in general. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it has ticked up just slightly recently, but uh, because of people coming out of the Gulf war, right. uh, they come coming into service, but, uh, but that, but that's true. I mean, not, I mean, compared to, you know, 30 years ago when, you know, so many of them had, had military experience. 
I, I don't know exactly how that, I, I would say that we do get, uh, I mean, overall, I think we get pretty darn good, uh, um, support, you know, in, in budgets and, uh, and overall, I, I don't think the U S military can complain a whole lot. Mm -hmm. There's been a few, you know, there's been a few times over the last 20 years where it's been tough, but, uh, but we've always as a nation tried to, you know, we've, been avoid you know always avoided the huge standing army i think a little bit it's yeah part of our name part of our nature you know right so. right and it may be it may be more just when when they uh, don't pass the budgets and they go to continuing resolutions they don't understand that the difficulty what, they, exactly they don't understand that continuing res- resolutions does not help it keeps us all coming to work and all that but it doesn't it doesn't help the uh it doesn't help the budget that uh, that is designed to, uh, support the national security strategy and that type of thing. Exactly. So what, what does a week look like in Doug Farnham's, uh, normal, normal week? I'm, I'm guessing you have to do a fair amount of travel even during the week to, to, uh, DC for the guard or what, what's it look like between the, the guard role and your cabinet role? Well, it, you know, it's interesting. It's all, it is a, uh, I will say it's very heavy on the military side, but a lot of it is depend. I mean, maybe that's just the way I, that it, the way I did. I remember, uh, when talking to Bill Libby about the job, uh, years ago, and he says, you know, it's the job is, is, uh, what you decide that it needs to be, uh, in cooperation with your governor. And, and so I've been very fortunate that I've, worked on a two governors that, uh, that have been very supportive and, and allowed me to put my focus where it needed to be. And, and for the most part, that's been on the national guard side of things until COVID COVID came. Uh, and then of course COVID happened and it almost completely flip-flopped and most of the job was focused on in-state with, uh, main emergency management and, uh, and the state response and very little to do with the federal, uh, the federal DOD and national guard. But on a, I would say uh, I do end up going to uh, D.C. a lot. Uh, the the adjutant generals uh, do get together in either groups or as a whole quite often, as we have different committees and organizations that that uh, focus on different parts of of either the air or the army or the army aviation or or uh, or you know reserve reserve forces uh, policy. Uh, uh, you know, work and uh, and so there is a fair share. Normally, at least uh, twice a month, two weeks out of the month, I'm at least part of the week uh, traveling. Over half of that to D.C. and the Pentagon and and uh, Air Guard, our Army Guard Readiness Center, and then uh, and then a f- and then other than that, a few other a few other places where we have meetings, um, and then. Uh, and then I try to spend a little bit of time uh, talking with the folks at MEMA and the folks at, uh, at Bureau of Veteran Services, and and on in mo- those days coming to Augusta. So I my office is in Augusta, so I do spend a little bit of time on I ninety five. And uh, but it's a uh, but you know it's it is a uh, I telling somebody the other day it's a great I mean it's a great job because you do have people that are very committed to what they do. And you have folks that run, you know, our, the director of Bureau of Veteran Services, Dave Richmond, uh, incredibly dedicated guy, good leader, um, former Army Guardsman, and uh, and he's and he's got a great team that he works with, and 
and Pete Rogers, another former Army Guardsman who uh, runs Maine Emergency Management, uh, does a great job running a bunch of people that are in that business because they want to be in the emergency response business and the emergency management business. Um, and then, of course, as you know, the Air Guard, you know, you know, kind of runs itself, and the Army Guard has leadership that runs itself. So when things are going going well, I just uh, I, I can I can really just you know admire and, re- and travel around representing them and what they do, because uh, as you know, the main uh, Army and Air National Guard have great reputations and. And so I, uh, I get to bask in that a little bit. Just your hand on the tiller, so to speak, right? Just <laughs> exactly. They we they do, and I think people probably uh, nowadays know how involved the the Air Guard and the Army Guard are with our day to day military readiness. You know, it was it really started back in. I think the first Gulf War, and we really got a glimpse of how important the, the Army Guard was. I think the Air Guard particularly the refuelers, but uh, Air Guard had been, had had a larger role, right, in the, I think, in the, in the overall uh, Air Air Force uh, mission, but the Army, since the first Gulf War, really is, um, and, and then the subsequent um, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have shown everybody how, how involved they are. Exactly. And it hasn't really slowed down. I mean, we, we are, we like to consider, I mean, we're primarily a combat reserve of the Air Force and the Army. Uh, all of our money, budget, uh, all of our equipment, all of our, everything is based on what our, that federal uh, combat reserve of the Air Force and the Army mission is. Um, and it's, and because we have all that, the byproduct is that we have the, we have the resources and the people to help in our state role like responding to COVID or like you mentioned, the ice storm of 98 or, or where, whatever it happens to be. In some states, it's responding to hurricanes and, and the, uh, the wildfires and all that. We're fortunate we don't have to deal too much with that. But, uh, um, it, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of attention during the Gulf Wars and the use of the Guard, um, but it really hasn't slowed down. We've got today, we've got 100 and 87 Air and Army Guardsmen that are uh, that are deployed outside the state. Um, that doesn't inc- that doesn't include the people that are sitting at Bangor, sitting on alert and and doing the mission from here in state. But we've got a, you know, like I said, over 180 uh, folks that are outside the state deployed today. About half, a little over half of those are the Air Guard um, right now. But um, but over the last couple of years, it's gone both it's gone both ways. Air and Army. Um, but I'd say 187 is probably on the low side of the number we've had deployed over the last several years. So it's nothing's really slowed uh, slowed down too much as far as that responsibility. Very impressive, and you can probably still go around the world and see a maniac sticker somewhere in some location. I remember being in Germany one time and seeing a maniac sticker uh, from our our great uh, refueling uh, unit up in Bangor. Uh, that you were a part of for so long. Absolutely. I ran into Senator Collins at the airport the other day, and the first thing she wanted to show me was her, the case on her cell phone that she had a maniac sticker stuck on. Uh, it, we have a lot to be proud of with, with our, our National Guard, for sure. Uh, what would you say to somebody, uh, a young person, uh, maybe you've talked with your boys about leadership positions, but anybody who wanted to either get into the military, but wanted to be in a leadership position in general, what, what sort of advice would you give them? 
Well, I think one of the things that I like to, you know, it, it's really easy to say, hey, I want to be a leader or, um, or yeah, I, I want to be the one in charge or whatever, but that's not really life, right? I mean, leadership, like I say, leadership's a team sport and you kind of have to know what your role is on the team. And sometimes it might be that you're the president of the company or that you're the general or that you're the, you know, the squadron commander or the platoon leader, but sometimes you're not. Um, and so, uh, so it's, it's really, uh, it's the, the, uh, you know, it's really knowing your role and being the best at that role that's going to prepare you to be a leader in the future. Cause someday you will have that, the actual top job. But if you haven't mastered being able to play your role on the team, you're never going to be able to, you're never going to be able to be that leader. Right. I, uh, there's a, there's an old Ted video, Ted talk video. I used to show to folks that, uh, the kind of so they, the guy, I can't remember the guy's name. I sh- should know. And he's talking about, you know, you're in a group and there's the, he, he refers to some guys being the lone nut, the guy who comes up with that crazy idea that everybody, you know, most everybody turns their nose up and says, ah, that's a little out, out there, you know, but it's the, the first follower, the first guy that gets up and say, Hey, that's a good idea. I think we should do that. That first follower is kind of an under, uh, estimated form of leadership. And so, uh, you know, having the the courage to follow people and and recognize a good idea and get on board uh, is just as important, maybe, as being the guy who uh, who is uh, you know is the guy who has been designated in charge. And and if you do that enough and you play your role on the team as often as you can, uh, the best that you can, you know, someday you probably will be the guy uh, you know the guy that's in charge. That's great advice. And I, you know, I, I look at it one of the things I said to somebody one day is it's, it doesn't have to be the rah-rah person that, that, that always is, is the leader or the people we identify as a leader. Sometimes they're not the, the leaders don't feel like you have to be that very loud, you know, aggressive, extroverted, uh, rah-rah type person. You can still be a leader and, and do it in, in subtle, more subtle ways that, you know, as you mentioned, you learn as being part of a team. Absolutely. And the, uh, the other thing I like to, you know, I tell you is you just never know when you're going to get pulled into that, that leadership role. I, I, uh, the old Sully Sullenberger, uh, from the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, landing the uh, airplane on the Hudson there, you know, he, he had a quote that was something to the, Effect of uh, that during his 42 uh, years of flying, that uh, he never knew on which 280 seconds that his entire career would be judged. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, you just never, you know, you just don't know when you're going to be in a, in a situation and uh, that you that you're you're forced to be to be the guy that makes some decisions and and so you got to be re- you know you got to be ready and willing to uh, you know to step up when when called upon. Absolutely. Well, as you, uh, as you get toward the end of, uh, your, your career at some point in the next 10 years or so <laughs> in the military, <laughs> maybe, uh, what do you, what will you look back on and, and say you're most proud of in, in any aspect of your career as a leader, uh, from the military, from the civilian world? Can you think of anything that stands out as, as something that, uh, you look back I, on to it, 
Well, geez, that's a good question. I'm going to probably have to start thinking about that a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I, I think I was talking to somebody the other day. I was at, I was at a change of command, and and I, I, I joked that I kind of felt old for the first time because I actually was watching the change of command, and I was I was watching it from the perspective of being proud of the person that was taking command and how, and having watched them, you know, come from being the new guy to work their way up. And now all of a sudden they were a commander. Um, and so I think that, um, I think that it is watching, uh, you know, I've always, I've always said, cause you have to believe that the people that are coming behind you are more than capable of doing the job. Uh, and that they're probably going to do the job better than you did it. You got to believe that. Uh, right. And then to actually see it happen, to see people that are, that are now the squadron commanders, now the wing commanders, now the, you know, the, the, uh, got to use some army terms here, Rob. So, uh, <laughs> use a battalion command. I mean, when you start seeing these people, uh, you know, you see people come into those roles, um, that, uh, that you watched come up through. I think I've just, I'm just now starting to get to the point that I appreciate that piece of it. And I, and like I said, maybe I joked with the guy I was standing with the other day saying, I, I, I feel like, uh, I think I'm getting old because I'm, I'm fe- that's the, uh, the feeling I get is that I'm proud that, I, that this person has got to that point, you know. That, that's but a I, great I that's, answer. Great answer. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I've, I've thought about that a lot myself. I think, you know, whether, whether you had a little bit to do with helping them along the way or just the style of leadership that they observed the the humility that goes with it that uh, that I know you have that that stands out uh, with with the way you influence people is yeah. is probably gone a long way to some of those those folks that you're talking about. Well, you you hope that because you you probably remember as an old instructor yourself uh, in an airplane or uh, well mm-hmm. not not just an airplane but uh, helicopter. You, <laughs> you wish you you wish you had wings. I wish I did. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. But you know, that old thing about that every time an airplane goes down or something that uh, every time somebody rides one in a little piece of all of them go, you know, a little piece of everybody goes in with them, right? Because we all had some role in the teaching and the training and the educating and, and the preparation of person. So when somebody crashes, or has an incident, we all kind of own that a little bit. Uh, so you got to believe the other, I mean, I got to believe the other way too, that when people succeed, that, uh, that we all had a little piece of that success as well. And, and, uh, and I, 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 at least I hope that's the case. Well, I'm, I'm certain it is. And, you know, uh, just as you've probably been a mentor to so many, my last question before we wrap up is, uh, are there any mentors that you can think of that really played a role in your development? Oh, geez. I mean, I, that's another, I mean, it's a good point. That's another thing I tell people is to pay attention. A lot of times you're getting mentored and you don't even know it. Right. Um, and recognizing when somebody's mentoring you is important. Um, and I, I go back to, uh, you know, my high school basketball coach who one day got upset because I got a technical foul and he called me in his office the next day and, and he was really upset. And he says, you know, you know, I don't get that upset with uh, everybody when they get the, you know, he's, but I don't expect that out of you because you're a leader. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden I remember thinking, I remember that because that was one of, one of the first times I said, you know, maybe I am. A leader. Maybe that is a role that I have, or it's, you know, General Petrowski that I talked about earlier, who said you can serve different ways. You know, you can mm-hmm. serve different ways. 
or it's Bill Libby, as you, you know, Bill, mm-hmm. General Bill Libby one of, very well. One of my mentors, for sure. Exactly, who called me one day and said, hey, you know, uh, you ought to consider this job, this adjunct general job someday. I think you could do it. And I, you know, I, it was one of those things I never would have, I never would have even considered or, um, you know, I, so I think all the way along, along the way, you have people that have reached out and, and uh, again, co- you know, coaches and my dad, my dad, I remember telling, you know, telling me that, you know, you, you know, there's a lot of people that can do different things on the field or on the court, but not everybody can be, you know, can be a leader. So um, the, uh, so I trying to, you know, recognizing when people are trying to, uh, are trying to lead are trying to mentor you. Um, not everybody's accepting <laughs> of that mentorship. So, but I, I'd say I, I would probably put, uh, um, you know, Bill Libby uh, pretty near the top of that list. Uh, Steve Atkinson was a wing command, one of my wing commanders who just passed away a couple of weeks ago. We had his funeral this weekend and, and uh, he was a mentor because he was one of the guys that reached out and, uh, you know, he, he reached out and recognized me as a guy who had been a part-timer and night flyer and came out and, and kind of pulled me out of the pack and said, Hey, I, I, uh, I think you've got, you know, there's some, I've got other plans for you, so to speak. And, and, and kind of set me on the track that I ended up today. So, um, you know, so I think, uh, we're all very lucky that, uh, mentors take the time and to, to mentor. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Doug, uh, it's, it's been a great, uh, almost an hour. I hope, uh, I'm sorry for keeping you so long, but it just, uh, love, love talking with you and, and learning about, uh, all of your, uh, tremendous history and, and your, your career in the, in the guard and the state and, and business and, and also uh, serving our nation over the last 39 years or so. So I really appreciate uh, you joining us. Well, I, hey, it was a, it was an honor to do it, and uh, anytime I can talk about uh, talk about the guard, uh, I uh, I appreciate the t- appreciate the time because it's as you know a great a great message, uh, a, a great uh, organization to talk about. Well, let's hope let's hope the guard has you for a few more years before you decide <laughs> to retire. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, this is Rob Carmichael with Mainly Matters, and I'll be back with another episode soon. I hope you'll join us then. Thank you.